if you love me, you will keep my commands. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another counselor to be with you forever. He is the Spirit of truth. The world is unable to receive him because it doesn't see him or know him, but you do know him because he remains with you and will be in you. When the counselor comes, the one I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will testify about me. You also will testify because you have been with me from the beginning. While Jesus was with them, he commanded them to not leave Jerusalem, but to wait for the Father's promise, which, he said, you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit in a few days. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come on you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. It's been 50 days since the Jews gathered in Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. They come together again to celebrate the Feast of Weeks, better known as Pentecost. They have come from all over to give thanks to God for the harvest. And yet this Pentecost will be unlike any other. At this Pentecost, God will create a new temple by filling those who have faith in Jesus with His Holy Spirit, with His very presence. Indeed, the Holy Spirit will begin to harvest that which Jesus purchased for himself. Worshippers from every tongue, tribe, and nation. This is an incredible Pentecost. The Spirit comes. Now, the main idea of this whole chapter, uh, chapter 2 in Acts, is that God is keeping his promise to empower his people with his Holy Spirit for his mission. If you remember, we've summarized the whole book of Acts like this. Uh, Jesus goes up, he ascends to his throne, he's seated on his throne where he rules and reigns. He sends his Holy Spirit down to empower his people for mission. So Jesus goes up, the Spirit comes down, and the church goes out to the nations to proclaim the wonderfully good news that Jesus Christ is the Messiah the world has waited on, that he was crucified for the sins of all who will trust in him, that he was raised from the dead for the justification of all who will follow him, and that he's seated on the throne, ruling and reigning for his people right now. Now, this morning's going to be a little bit different. Uh, I had intended originally when I set out to cover the first 13 verses of this chapter. Uh, there are a lot of decisions you have to make because really what happens in the first 13 verses gets explained by Peter's sermon in verses 14 up through like 41, I think it is, somewhere in and around there. And so originally I was like, I'm just going to preach this whole big thing right now. We're going to cover some ground. 
And then I read and I went, no, let's be that little less ambitious. Let's do 13 verses together. And then by the end of the week, I went, you know, we're just going to do the first four. Uh, and so uh, we're going to take like probably 20 minutes on each verse. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Uh, but we're going to do the first four verses. In the first chunk of our time together, I'm going to just do the typical, we'll walk through the text, some exegesis, and then we're going to take a kind of a topical turn, if you will, and talk about some of the themes in the text that show up elsewhere, uh, and it's going to kind of be more application-oriented, so that you're not like, what is going on? This is different than usual. Um, and so our outline this morning will be this. We'll look at the first four verses, and we'll talk about receiving the Holy Spirit. We'll talk about the Holy Spirit's coming at Pentecost. And then in the second part of our time together, we're going to talk about what it is to experience the Holy Spirit in our Christian lives. And so let's pray, and then we'll get into the text. God, we need your help this morning. We come as a sinful people who have been feeding much on the culture on consumerism, a people that have been giving much attention to our flesh and too much attention to ourselves. Pray that you would reorient us again this morning, that, that you would calibrate us so that we would rightly be centered on you, focused on you. Give us ears that we might hear from you. Pray that you would cause me to preach a better sermon than I prepared. Pray that you would cause this people to hear a better sermon than I preach. God, we ask that your spirit would come and apply your words to our hearts so that true change might take place within us, that we might be conformed more and more to the image of Jesus Christ, our Lord. He is the reason we gather. And to him we give all the glory, honor, and praise this morning. It's in his name that we pray, Father. Amen. Acts chapter 2, starting with verse 1. When the day of Pentecost had arrived, they were all together in one place. Suddenly, a sound like that of a violent rushing wind came from heaven, and it filled the whole house where they were staying. Y'all remember a few weeks ago, and then again recently, we, we had so those wind storms, just incredibly powerful winds, over 60 miles per hour, blew siding off of my house, blew trees and limbs all over the place. I, I still haven't managed to pick up all the sticks, but, but as that wind was howling, if you were in my house, you could hear those windows kind of shake, and then eventually it would come through some of them and, and make that howling noise that's just ghoulish and wonderful. And you could just get a sense of how strong and powerful this storm was that was outside. A similar thing is happening here. The Holy Spirit is showing up with the sound and strength of a tornado. It is an incredible experience. And it's kind of scary, right? If you've ever been outside when there's strong winds and like tried to walk against it or even drive your car and it like blows you from one side of the road to the other, you understand this is something that is stronger than I am, something that is outside of me that I don't really have any control over. So to hear that the Spirit is coming, and I don't imagine that they are all looking around going right away, hey, this is what Jesus was talking about, don't worry, 
The, the, the Spirit is showing up. It's filling up this house. And it's not that God has a flair for the dramatic that causes the Spirit to show up this way. Right? Actually, this connection between the Holy Spirit and wind or breath is one that is carried throughout the whole Bible. In fact, in Hebrew, the word ruach, that's how you pronounce it, is the same word for spirit and breath and wind. It means all three, and the context helps you to discern which one it should mean at which point in time. And so uh, this shows up really well in uh, the book of Ezekiel. In chapter 37, there's that famous passage about Ezekiel in the valley of the dry bones. You remember? There's this huge valley of kind of rotted and decayed and dusty and dry bones. And God says to Ezekiel, can these bones live? And Ezekiel's like, he's asking me a trick question here. And he says, if you say they can, Lord, sounds like a pretty good answer. And then God tells him to, to speak to the bones and so he does, and they get tendons on them, and flesh starts to form, and muscle. And then they're still not alive. And God says to Ezekiel, prophesy to the breath, spirit, wind. Prophesy, son of man. Say to it, this is what the Lord God says. Breath, wind, spirit. I think this one should be wind. Come from the four winds and breathe into these slain so that they may live. So I prophesied as he commanded me, the breath, spirit, wind, this one should probably be spirit, entered them, and they came to life and stood on their feet as a vast army. The point is that when the spirit shows up, he gives life through the word of God proclaimed. The association with wind the symbolism with wind is to show us that this is God, the Holy Spirit, showing up. And he's going to do something. He's the Spirit that gives life. If you are a Christian, this is the Spirit that is in you. Jesus explains this in John chapter 3, verses 5 through 8. When he's talking to Nicodemus, he says this, Truly I tell you, Unless someone is born of water and the Spirit, water here probably isn't baptism, it's probably water of cleansing from the Ezekiel passage that we just read earlier together. If someone is born of water and the Spirit, unless he's born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Whoever is born of the flesh is flesh, and whatever is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not be amazed that I told you, you must be born again. The wind... Notice the coupling together here of wind and spirit once more. Blows where it pleases, and you hear its sound. But you don't know where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. Here's the point. If you are a Christian, you have been born again by the Holy Spirit. If you believe in Jesus, that's the Holy Spirit's work in you. There is no such thing as a Christian who is not born again by the work of the Holy Spirit. No such thing. The Spirit comes and He creates faith in the people of God. He enables them to know God and to make God known. It's as if at Pentecost, God is coming down and He's instituting a new framework as He fills up His people. 
He's, if you think about like a, if you were a mayor in a city and you put in a like new city water system that went out to all the houses, it's always running, it's always there, and then if somebody new moves in or they have to build a new house, they're going to hook up to that existing water system. Because when the Holy Spirit comes at Pentecost, he, he stays. What we see throughout the rest of the New Testament, the Spirit doesn't come at Pentecost, do some cool things, and then, you know, I'm out of here, never to see you again. No, he stays in and with the people of God. Remember, Corinthians tells us, you are the temple of the Holy Spirit. We are where the temple resides. And so it's like that water system that's been put in, it stays there, and then anybody who becomes a Christian or builds a house in the city hooks up to the kingdom, hooks up to that same source of power and of blessing. The installation happens only once, but its significance is ongoing. And so once you have the Holy Spirit, you have him. He's, he changes his address. He takes up residence in you as the temple of God. And the Spirit here is showing up. He's descending on the people of God. And the presence of God is made more evident in verse 3. They saw tongues like flames of fire that separated and rested on each one of them. Now, fire in the Old Testament is always a symbol. It's an image of God's presence, right? Moses meets with God in a, God is in the burning bush. God leads Israel through the wilderness in a pillar of fire. Solomon, when he commissions the temple, he sees fire in the holy of holies. Mount Sinai is covered in fire and flame when the law is given to Moses. And now here in the New Testament, we see fire coming and resting on God's people. And what is happening is God is coming to reside in his people. His presence is going to be in his people, in those who have faith in Christ. That's where his presence is. So now every believer is a burning bush. Every believer is a pillar of fire. Every believer is a holy temple. Every believer has in them the very presence of God. This is, is staggering, especially in light of the truth that, that usually when God shows up, when the presence of God shows up in the Old Testament, people start dying, right? Or, or it's really, really a fearful experience, Remember Mount Sinai, they're, they're all at the bottom and Moses is talking and there's kind of like this storm and fire and smoke going on and they're like, Moses, we can't even take it anymore. Don't, don't talk to us anymore. You go, up and get, you go up and get the instruction. We're afraid. I mean, just consider the contrast. In Exodus 19, Israel breaks the law and about 3,000 of them die. And here, when God's presence is showing up in the form of fire, 3,000 people are saved. See that in verse 41. So those who accepted Peter's message were baptized, and that day about 3,000 people were added to their number. This fire that used to terrify and kill in the Old Testament, now under the new covenant, makes alive, purifies, and refines why the change? It's 
Because Jesus came and took the fire of God's wrath that was due to you so that you could have the fire of God's presence and live. And take that presence out to the nations. It's what's going on here. He's empowering them to do what he said in verse 8. You'll receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem to the ends of the earth. The come and see religion of the Old Testament is gone and the go and tell religion of the New Testament has arrived. No longer will people have to travel from wherever they are to Jerusalem to get into the presence of God and, and work through a priest who goes into the Holy of Holies on their behalf or one, that's only once a year or offers offerings on their behalf. Now, now people can encounter God one-to-one where they are when they encounter the people of God proclaiming the word of God by the spirit of God. God's presence goes with his people throughout the whole earth. That, that's incredible. It's incredible. Have you ever thought about this? If you are a Christian, you take God's presence to other people. No, don't, don't get messed up and fall into heresy here where you start thinking like you're God. No, no. But God shows himself through you. He shows himself through you. You show other people when you're walking by the Holy Spirit what God is like because God the Holy Spirit resides in you. 1 Corinthians 12 tells us this, 4 through 7. This has become one of my favorite passages since we studied it. Uh, I don't remember when that was, but, you know, back in the day. Now there are different gifts, but the same Spirit. There are different ministries, but the same Lord. And there are different activities, but the same God produces each gift in each person. And here's the one I love. A manifestation of the Spirit is given to each person for the common good. The Holy Spirit showcases himself in you and in your spiritual giftings for the good of the church and for the salvation, for the evangelism of the lost. Ephesians 3.10 tells us this too. God's multifaceted wisdom, or manifold wisdom, may now be made known through the church to the rulers and authorities in the heavens. And so it's God's plan to reconcile us to himself by coming himself, to die for us himself, and to raise himself up and seat himself on the throne, then to send his Holy Spirit to live within us and take his message to the nations. The Spirit in us is how God, through his word and the Spirit together, makes himself known. In, notice in Ephesians 3.10, it's not only, God doesn't only make his, the wisdom and the, the wonderful nature of our reconciliation to him known to the world. He, he makes his wisdom known to the rulers and authorities in the heavens. You are, we are as the church, filled with the Spirit in such a way that we make God's wisdom and knowledge and glory known not only to other people but to the angels and the demons that are in dimensions unseen like they didn't have their mind wrapped around the mystery of the gospel and they look at the church and they're going oh my goodness you know angels are rejoicing they're going, this is incredible 
God's wisdom is beyond measure. And we, in our life together, as His people, through His Spirit and proclaiming His Word, in our life together, we we are making God's wisdom known. It's amazing. His presence is in us. Fire separated and rested on each of them. And it's tongues like flames of fire, so it's, I imagine it's some kind of light that just looks a little bit like fire, best way he could describe it. And then this light that looks like fire, it, it goes above their heads and rests on them, and it takes the shape of a, of a tongue, a human tongue. Look at verse 4. Then they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and began to speak in different tongues as the Spirit gave them ability for speech. I want to point out here, um, Paul talks about angelic tongues elsewhere. That's in 1 Corinthians 14. If you want to know all about tongues and gifts of the Spirit, you can go and listen to that sermon. I've linked to it in a footnote online. Uh, You can go back and listen to that there. I don't want to deal with all that right now. We don't have the time. Uh, But tongues here is not angelic tongues. The tongues here, it should rightly be translated languages right? If you speak in a different tongue than somebody, you speak in a different language than them. And and the reason or the way that we see that this is referring to languages is just by putting it in context, right? So let me read you verse 4, and then I'll read down through 13, where I had originally intended to go, right? Uh, They were filled with the Holy Spirit. They began to speak in different languages as the Spirit gave them ability for speech. Now there were Jews staying in Jerusalem, devout people from every nation under heaven, people that don't speak all the same language. When this sound occurred, a crowd came together and was confused because each one heard them speaking in his own language. And so you've got the uh, disciples, these followers of Christ, they're filled with the Spirit, they're speaking in different languages, and now you have these people that are from other nations hearing these people speaking in their own language. It's like uh, somebody from the backwoods showing up and speaking fluent, I don't know, Arabic, right? They're like, what is going on here? Or maybe this might be dated, but the ca- it's like the cast from Duck Dynasty would show up and just know like French and uh, Arabic and Hebrew and all these languages, just unexpected. Each of them hear him speaking in his own language. They were astonished and amazed, saying, look, aren't these all who are speaking Galileans? How is it that each of us can hear them in our own language? And then it lists all the various nations that people are from. And in the point of this particular manifestation of the gift of tongues or languages is so that the message of God, the message of Jesus' lordship, can be heard and believed by all nations. The major point of, of this section, and it's a preview of the rest of the book, is that God's concern isn't just to save Israel. It's to save a people from every tongue, tribe, and nation. You know, we fast forward to the end of Revelation. People from every tongue, tribe, and nation are praising God. He's making himself known. He's making the, the truth of the gospel known. That's why the Holy Spirit's showing up here. He's empowering the church for the mission of God, which we learn from verse 8 in chapter 1, there to be his witnesses in Jerusalem and to the ends of the earth. And it's happening, man. It's happening right here, right now, they're witnessing to the truth 
of Jesus crucified for their sins and raised for their justification. He's going to tell us all about it in his sermon. But right now, uh, we're going we're to take that turn, and I want to talk about uh, what it means to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Because I think there's a lot of confusion here, and I'm not going to answer all of your questions or objections, uh, but I do want to answer one. Because I, I think there's probably a lot of you sitting out there going, you know, Pastor, you're telling me that I'm full of the Holy Spirit, that I have the Holy Spirit, but I think you're full of it. If I'm full of the Holy Spirit, I, he, he must, uh, you know, he must live in me like cockroaches live in a kitchen, right? You only see them every once in a while, and then they're gone again. It's like they're not there. If the Spirit lives in me, why does it feel like he's never home? Let me answer that in a couple, just with... I want to reiterate that a lot of the experiences in Acts are unique. They're descriptive of what was happening in this awesome period of church history as we were transitioning between Old Covenant and New Covenant. But I also want to point out that the same spirit that's doing these miraculous things in Acts, is the, is, that's the spirit that lives in you if you're a Christian. And you have, this is important, because this is my main idea, which I failed to tell you at the beginning, I think. Christians are full of the Holy Spirit. You have as much of the Holy Spirit as Jesus does by virtue of your union with Christ. Right? There's so many verses about how we are united to Christ when we put our faith in him. Married to him. What's his is ours. Ephesians 1 tells us that he's given us every spiritual blessing in the heavens. Listen, God is not holding out on you. All right? He, he's not giving you like, oh, yeah, I guess I've got to give them just a little bit of my spirit. And then once they shape up, they can have the fullness of it. That's not how it works. God by his grace, pours out his spirit into his people in its fullness. The, the objective truth is that the fullness of God's spirit resides in you if you are a Christian. Now, your subjective experience of the Holy Spirit is going to vary. And it's going to vary according to ultimately what God desires, but also according to what you are cultivating in yourself. When I was younger, I didn't always enjoy coffee. But now, first thing I do in the morning is that, you know, that fog is on you, you can't see, you kind of got sleepies in the eyes. For me, usually there are children running around. It's so like my goal is don't trip over too many kids, get to the coffee pot, make coffee, drink that sweet nectar of life. That's the goal. But I didn't always like it. At some point, probably in college, I decided, I'm not crazy about this, but I need to stay awake. And so I'm going to drink this stuff. Then something weird happened over a period of time. I started to really like coffee. I mean, really love it. I developed a taste for coffee. Likewise, we need to develop a taste for the things of God. And, and what I mean is, a lot of us 
and follow Jesus. But we live our lives as if someone else or something else were king. We, we, we love Jesus, but we live in such a way that we give ourselves to other things. So that he kind of gets relegated to an hour on Sunday morning. And there's like these different versions of ourselves. We say, my religious self, Sunday morning, that's when I'm with Jesus. Then I have work me, you know, gets up and does my routine in the morning, you know, 45 minutes to get dressed. Then I get on my commute and I go to work. And then I come home from work, you know, get my kids in bed, have dinner, you know, maybe uh, whatever else it is you do, you know, throw on some Netflix, whatever it is, and then you go to bed and do it all over again. And somewhere in that routine, all these other influences come in and start feeding your soul so that what you center your thoughts around and your affections around ends up being work or uh, your house or you know, those few precious minutes you get with your family or you know, those wonderful minutes where you're in seclusion in your basement playing video games. You know? I don't know who's like that, but what, what's happening is you are, your tastes, the default mode of your taste is for the things of the world. And when you feed the things of the world, that's what's going to grow up in you. You're, you're filled with the Spirit. You're a Christian. You've got the Holy Spirit. But, but you're starving Him because you're not aware that you are at war. Right? Galatians I should turn there. I did. Okay. Galatians 6, 7, and 8 tell us this. Don't be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a person sows, he will also reap. Because the one who sows to his flesh will reap destruction from the flesh. But the one who sows to the Spirit will reap eternal life from the Spirit. There is a war going on in you, and you are either sowing to the flesh or sowing to the spirit. You're either feeding your natural old self that's supposed to be crucified with Christ, that selfish you, or you are feeding the spirit of God. And the classic is whatever you feed grows. And the animal that is your sin, you must starve it out. You must crucify it. I think too often we are starving the spirit because we haven't trained ourselves. We haven't developed a taste for the things of God. And then we wonder why we don't experience God. It's the same thing as if, uh, if I told Chelsea, hey, we're married, objectively, um, but I only want to see you an hour a week on Sunday, every other Sunday, okay? Don't text me, don't call me, don't even want to see you. But whoop, that hour a week, we're going to be in marital bliss, man. Like, objectively, we'll be married, but our experience of our marriage, well, it'll be far different. We won't be able to experience and cultivate that joy because we're not together, we're not building relationships. So what I want to do is just really get really practical and say, I want to help you develop a taste for, for the things of God. 
And some of these are applications that I've tried not to make because uh, I'm like, well, that's kind of a, you know, it's a layup and we can get there on our own. And I just, these are really basic Christian applications that maybe you've heard a hundred times. Really think about, uh, think about them. So we want to develop a taste for the things of God by developing our taste for listening to his word, talking to him, and being with his people. So I want to start with listening to his word, listening to God speak. This is where our relationship with God begins. And you, since we're, I'm preaching right now and you're listening, this is a great example for me to say, we want to listen to God's word preached. And we want, we want to hunger and thirst for righteousness. This should be something you look forward to. I know some of you dread it, but, but we're, we're, we want to flip that, right? What you can do is you want to, throughout the week, and right now even, you want to pray for me as I preach that I would be faithful to the text. You want to pray for yourself as you listen that you might not be thinking about where you're going to have Mother's Day lunch afterwards. You want to pray for yourself during the week as you read over the text. Right? It's not typically not super complicated here. Uh, I preach so far and then the next week we pick up at the verse that's after it and go so far. You don't you want to listen to God's word proclaimed. It's God's word that gives life, that breathes life into dry bones, makes dead people come to life. Secondly, we want to listen to God's word as we read it. God, through his Holy Spirit, has written 66 books. They've been put together in one book that we call our Bible. You probably have multiple translations of it throughout your house, and they are all probably gathering an equal amount of dust. We want to listen to God speak to us in his word by reading it. I mean, that, that's, that's number one, right? Do it. It's just a real simple outline to have a successful, uh, quiet time with the Lord whenever you do it. Start with doing it, right? You can start really small if this is hard for you. You set a, a timer on your phone for 10 minutes and say, I'm going to read, uh, you know, some people will read a chapter in the Old Testament, chapter in the New Testament, call it a day. Some people just like to get in one book and, you know, two or three chapters there, power on through. Whatever it is that works for you, say, I'm going to commit to reading the Bible. But not just reading it, the second thing. I want you to read it thoughtfully. Read it thoughtfully. So maybe you go do have your phone timer set for 10 minutes, but your goal isn't to just exhaust those 10 minutes. And man, that felt like an eternity. That was awful, right? Like, you're not trying to just check the religious read my Bible box. You're trying to meet with God. And so you want to read, you want to do your quiet time. You want to read and you want to read thoughtfully. And so uh, some of the things that have helped me, I think will help you. We, we want to follow a pretty simple pattern is uh, Called, I think typically called inductive Bible study, but it's observation, interpretation, application. Order is important here. Uh, we want to see what the text says, what's going on in the text, what it means, what it meant to the original audience, and then how does it apply to me? And so, for example, I always like to use this example. Uh, Paul oftentimes uh, gives the command to greet one another with a holy kiss. And so, if we were doing our observation and that was a verse that we read, we would say, okay, what's going on in this text? Well, uh, believers are greet, they're told to greet one another with a holy kiss. 
What does it mean in the original context? It means that believers should greet one another with affection. In this case, in this culture, holy kiss. What does it mean for me? Well, uh, I don't know that a holy kiss would be appropriate for everyone in our context. I mean, Janet gives me holy kisses, but that, she's the only one. Uh, lots of you, you go somewhere, you're, if somebody comes up to you and just kisses you when you come to a church for the first time, you're going to be like, that's weird. But a lot, a lot of cultures, in this culture at the time, you know, first, second century, that, that's what people did. That's normal. And the way it manifests for us, how does it apply to me? What means that when I'm greeting brothers and sisters in Christ, I'm doing so with a warmness and affection that, is, that typifies a family relationship. And that might manifest in a handshake and a hug. So you see, observation, interpretation, application. And another quick note, when you are reading your Bible, uh, th- there are two rules. The first rule is that there are more rules than that, but these two are all you need. Scripture interprets Scripture, and context is king. So that when I read something, it might mean one thing one place and another thing another place. In the context, I have to, you know, think to figure out what it is. So for example, uh, I'm going to say a word and then you're going to respond and I'm going to hope that you respond with what fits my illustration. Otherwise, I'm just going to, well, we'll, I'll just start over. But I'm going to say a word and then somebody's going to say what comes to their mind. It'll probably be Kim because the rest of y'all are shy. Wheel. Perfect. So if I say the word wheel, you, you think cars. Car, cool. That, that makes perfect sense. Cars have wheels. But if you and I are driving down the road together, and all of a sudden I start clutching at my chest and complaining of numbness in my arm, and I say to you, take the wheel, well, you're not going to look your head out the window and try to grab hold of one of the tires. No, you're going to understand by the context that the wheel is the steering wheel. Versus the wheels on the car. So same word, different context, different meaning. So context is king when we are reading our Bibles. So those are some things to keep in mind as you observe, interpret, and apply. What does it mean? What, sorry, what do I see? What's going on? What does it mean? What does it mean for me in my Christian life? Next, and this is really important, we want to make connections from one passage of scripture to another, what does this remind me of? Kind of like we just did in Acts 2. Hey, there's fire. Where else is there fire in the Bible? And Hebrews tells us God's a consuming fire. There's fire at Sinai. How do these things fit together? Do they have anything to do with one another at all? I don't know. Ask those questions. Think about things. You know, ask other believers. Hey, I was reading this in my Bible and I can't piece it together. Have spiritual conversations. Wrestle with God. Definitely look for Jesus. We're told in Luke 24, when Jesus is explaining the scriptures to the disciples, he says, all of the scriptures are about me. That's what the Holy Spirit loves to do. I have a quote here. Uh, Jared Wilson says, showing you Jesus is what the Holy Spirit is most after in your life. So we read the Bible most in step with the Spirit's inspiration when we watch for Christ. We want to look for Jesus in the text. How does this point me to Jesus? And I think that last, the line, he says, Jesus himself said that all the scriptures are about him. I think it's so important to remember that the Bible is about God. It's not about you. If you read your Bible as if it's primarily about you, then you are reading it wrong. It's not the story of how awesome you are. 
It's the story of how awesome God is. He's the main character. He's the hero. I mean, you're the fool that got captured. He's the one who slays the dragon to set you free. I mean, and we do this. You've you've probably heard it preached this way, right? You go to the story of David and Goliath, classically, and whatever problem you're dealing with at that point in your life, well, well, that's Goliath, and, and you're like David, and you've got to find your, your five smooth stones, five principles in order, uh, five principles to conquer your anger, and those are your, your five stones, okay? Got five ways for you to conquer your anger. Um, the first one is, is um, patience. The second one is your, your resolve, and what, when we read the Bible this way, what we're saying is, uh, it's about me, this story's about me mainly, and I've got to look inside of myself and unlock my potential, and then I can reach my goals. I can defeat my enemies. That's not, that's not what the Bible's about. The Bible is about how sinful and messed up you are, how messed up I am. It's about God saving a desperately wicked and sinful people from their greatest enemy, his wrath that they have earned. And so when we go to the story of David and Goliath, the right way to read it it's not that you're David. You're not David. Like you go, if you're David and you go against the Goliath of your sin and death, it's not going to go well for you. No. Jesus is the true and better David. You're, you're Israel over in the corner, scared to death of this great, mighty champion. Defeat for you looks certain. But then Jesus shows up and he kills the undefeatable foe. Jesus is the one who cuts off the head of Goliath. Jesus is the one who steps on the neck of the snake. Jesus is the one who goes underneath and absorbs the wrath of God on the cross. Jesus is the one who defeats death. Jesus is the hero. He's the protagonist, not you. Look for him in the Bible. He's the true and better Adam who succeeds in the garden and imputes to us his righteousness. He's the true and better Abel who dies innocently and whose blood cries out not for our condemnation but for our acquittal. Jesus is the true and better Joseph who is seated at the right hand of power, exercising his power for our good to to save the ones who have betrayed him. The whole Bible is about Jesus. So look for him when you are reading. This is what the Spirit wants to do. He wants to show you Christ. Develop a taste for spiritual things by listening to God speak through preaching and in his word. Next, we develop a taste for the things of the Spirit by talking to God, also known as prayer. When you pray, I think sometimes people feel like uh, you know, you got to really become eloquent all of a sudden. You get really proper. You know, I'm going to pray, so I better put my suit and tie on. It's not true. God knows who you are. He's familiar with your southern draw if you have one. Just talk to God. Commit to it. It's okay if your thoughts wander all over the place and you end up back in prayer. I know what that's like. But commit to praying. When you, when you pray, what you are saying is, I am dependent upon you, God. I'm dependent on your Holy Spirit, not myself. When you don't pray, that's that's evidence that you're depending on yourself. Prayerlessness is tantamount to faithlessness. 
Maybe you need help praying. That's okay. I do all the time. I use a, one of my favorites is to use written prayers, and I love the Valley of Vision, written by these Puritan guys long ago. They're really wicked smart. And, and you can go through there, and what happens is, is I pray those prayers as my own, and then all of a sudden, I have an easy time formulating my own prayers. So use written prayers, or write your own prayers. I have a little prayer journal, you write them down, get writer's cramp, maybe use a keyboard. But find ways to help yourself pray and to pray consistently. You want to experience the Spirit of God. You want to experience intimacy with God. Well, listen to what he says and talk back to him. Not in like a kid teenager talking about it apparently, but, but talk to him. Lastly, develop a taste for being around God's people. Not only does God command us to gather together for his glory as a church, but he encourages us with the church. Remember, uh, he shows himself through the people that he indwells with his Holy Spirit. And so one of the most encouraging things you can do for us, for one another, is just showing up to the weekly gathering. If you want to you experience intimacy with God, show up and serve one another. Right? Text one another, call one another, get in one another's business. And what you'll find when you're in relationship with one another is that, that God is showing himself to you through other Christians. Each one has been given a spiritual gift for the building up of the church. To walk with God, right? First John tells us, if we are in the light as he is in the light, then we will have fellowship with one another, right? If you don't have fellowship with other Christians in a committed way, you need to join a church. If you don't have fellowship with other Christians, I don't know if you are a Christian. I mean, don't tell me that you belong to my family and then you never show up to the family dinner table, all right? Like, belong. Participate. God will show you himself. You want to develop a taste for spiritual things by listening to God speak, talking with God, and developing a taste of just being around God's people. Thomas Goodwin had a, a way, he was an old British Puritan pastor, uh, of illustrating this. And so he, he gives you the picture of a father and a son walking along. And it's Mother's Day, so I'm going to change it. I'm going to make it more personal. Uh, so, so Chelsea and I, I'm just being creepy, watching my wife and my kid outside. And Chelsea, imagine with me, is walking along with little Owen, and they're just holding hands, you know, walking the wood line. And the next moment, she picks him up and, you know, tickles him and get a little raspberry, and he's got his arms around her neck. And he says, I love you, Ma. I love you, Mom. She says, I, I love you too, Owen. And then she, she puts him back down. Let me ask you a question. Is Owen more her son when she's picking him up than he is when he's walking next to her on the ground? Legally, no. Objectively, no. Subjectively, experientially, oh, something different is going on. He's experiencing a fuller extent of his sonship. What it means to belong to his mother. Likewise, Christians 
are those who are full of the Holy Spirit, objectively. And our experience of that is going to depend based on are we feeding the Spirit? Are we walking with God? Are we spending time with God? Or are we feeding our flesh? These two are at war with one another. Galatians 5, 17, For the flesh desires what is against the Spirit, and the Spirit desires what is against the flesh. These two are opposed to each other so that you don't do what you want. And then Paul says, Now those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with his passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Are you starving the Spirit or are you starving your flesh? Because the Spirit is in you, helping you to experience your sonship in God. He's testifying to the truth that you belong to Jesus. Testifies that indeed we are children of God. Brothers and sisters, Jesus, Jesus loves you to the stars. He does. He didn't tithe his blood, and he doesn't tithe his spirit either. He gives it all to you. And so I exhort you, take advantage of that. Experience the fullness of the Spirit that you already have. Experience your sonship, your daughtership, by developing a taste for the things of the Spirit. Feed the Spirit. Enjoy God. Let's pray. God, we thank you that your Spirit helps us in our weaknesses even when we don't know what to pray for as we should. He intercedes for us. He searches our hearts. God, you, you know us. You're working in us. You've made yourself known in us by your Spirit, working in us to make yourself known for the edification of the church, the evangelism of the lost. You're, you're so good to us so kind to us. So Lord, we, we, we thank you. We come before you boldly as only children can come. And we ask that you would give us a fresh experience of what it means to be filled with your spirit today. We ask that you would help us to experience you. That we would not submit ourselves again to the yoke of slavery, but live in the freedom that Jesus purchased by his blood. The freedom to obey your law. The freedom to walk with you. Submit ourselves to you. God, you have given us beyond measure. You are worthy of all the glory and praise and honor. Set our minds on the things of the Spirit. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.